0: Welcome to Students and Scholars, a literary podcast accompanying the course English 2620, British Literature After 1800, at Utah Valley University. I'm Dr. Zan Kemick. In this week's episode, we welcome guest scholar Dr. Ashley Nadeau as she examines Dracula as a novel that draws from popular Victorian genre fiction, and detective fiction in particular. She also uses examples of material culture within the novel, railways, blood, nightdresses, and typewriters, as objects that help us better understand Dracula's narrative. Dr. Nadeau received her doctorate from University of Massachusetts Amherst, where she studied Victorian fiction in relation to architecture and form. She's been faculty here at UVU for the past three years, and has recently begun a new study exploring the impact of audiobooks on 19th century studies making her insights into new media particularly exciting. Well, welcome, Ashley. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to chat with your class and join your conversation about Dracula.
0: So let's just get right into it. So Dracula is a kind of a unique narrative in that it's drawing from so many different influences and genres and um, other things like that. So can you talk to me a little bit about how you see Dracula drawing from the literary traditions of the Victorian era?
1: Sure. So I think Dracula is really a generic hybrid that has a lot of different literary forebears that help us make sense of the novel and the different questions or ways in which it's engaging with Victorian culture. Um, So I see Dracula as sort of having three main genres that it's engaging with and borrowing themes and sort of methods of storytelling from. I would say first we have on one hand the imperial gothic, right? So Dracula is a version of a Gothic novel that becomes really popular at the end of the 19th century. And you Mm -hmm. definitely get those strong Gothic vibes in the beginning of the text. We have, we're going to count Dracula's castle. We've got this sort of um, ominous and dark setting in Mm -hmm. uh, the Carpathian mountains in Transylvania. Um, And we've got this sort of really heavy sort of classical Gothic setting in the form of, uh, or in the mood of like an Anne Radcliffe novel, like the mysteries right. of Udolpho,
0: which is what we saw. What which is what we saw in Northanger Abbey when we were reading this before. This is what Catherine Moreland is fantasizing about, right?
1: Absolutely, yeah. Catherine's totally hoping there's going to be like locked doors and creepy stuff mm-hmm. at Northanger Abbey, only to be disappointed. Um, right. But of course, Jonathan Harker actually does find all of these uh, different sort of uh, scary elements to it, right? So mm-hmm. we've got. Um, so he finds himself locked in this castle. But what makes this novel not just a Gothic novel, but an Imperial Gothic, is the ways in which part of the anxieties about sort of what um, the Gothic novel is doing, right? If Gothic novels in some ways are about uncanniness, about something that's been repressed, coming back to the surface, often about family histories or the past um, revisiting us in some sort of disturbing way, right? That's why you have lots of ghosts and dead bodies Mm -hmm. and things like that. For the Imperial Gothic, what's returning in some ways is sort of the violence of empire being brought home, right? So we have this equation in which what's disturbing and gloomy and dangerous and what's often framed as the occult is often viewed as the sort of Imperial other. So in this case, Dracula himself, right? Is this, um, Racial and imperial other to someone like Jonathan. Um, and the real terror and the threat is his ability to come to London and bring the dangers of otherness um, to British soil. Um, and so it really participates in this broader cultural anxiety at the end of the 19th century where the sort of um, empire is no longer really expanding. And in fact, it's on the cusp of beginning to shrink. Um, there's this fear of this loss of power, right, and this sense of degeneration, which I'll talk, I can talk more about in a few minutes, but, um, so that's one way that it's, um, engaging with some, um, genre tropes of the imperial gothic. Some of the other, um, ways that I can see this novel fitting into broader, uh, genres is science fiction, right? Mm -hmm. So Dracula has a direct forebear um, in novels like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein um, and Polidori's The Vampire, which are actually sort of um, anecdotally, both of them, both of those novels came out of the same sort of spooky weekend, theoretically both from the same challenge by Lord Byron to come up with mm-hmm. a terrifying ghost story. And of course, mm-hmm. I think Shelley wins that battle. But we see sort of the the roots of the the cold of vampire stories in sort of... Um, British literary culture coming out at this moment but bringing in the idea of scientific invention and Mm -hmm. um, new technologies for that time period which is definitely part of Dracula as well Um, and this sort of focus on what it means to um, maintain a sort of purity of um, British identity even though uh, Frankenstein himself is non-British right there's this idea of sort of figuring out how to have sort of a, a, a perfect race of people um, without the threat of otherness and that's part of that as well and then uh-huh. also in this sort of version of science fiction novels um, and the sub-thread of vampires novels we can also see Lefanu's Carmilla as being part of the genetic sort of DNA of Dracula uh-huh. too.
0: yeah and Carmilla is one that First of all, it has connections to Stoker in terms of there's an Irish author writing Carmilla, um, but it also is, Carmilla is also interesting, right, in that its gender dynamics are so overtly challenging. Um, It's it's kind of considered a, a lesbian vampire novel in a lot of ways. And so it kind of sets up Stoker's conversations about gender and sexuality within Dracula in a lot of meaningful ways too, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I would say that Carmilla is definitely brings into light some of these sort of erotic connections that people see to vampires and sort of like dangerous eroticism of the vampire, which Mm -hmm. we still see in like modern tropes of vampires today, right? With the Twilight series. Um, But there's definitely this sense that, you know, in Carmilla, there's sort of this um, dangerous sex appeal to the vampire and that that threatens sort of the the good English girl, right? And that's what's under threat. And we can see that definitely in Dracula, although it doesn't have that sort of um, uh, lesbian association that Carmilla Mm -hmm. does. It's borrowing on some of those same tropes and ideas.
0: Yeah, the super sexy vampire trio in Dracula's castle are kind of very Carmilla-esque, aren't they?
1: Absolutely, yeah, completely part of that. Um, Yeah, so we see these sort of like the... Stoker's borrowing right from first this imperial gothic. So we've got the threat of the other coming in with this gothic setting with borrowing from science fiction, with this interest in sort of new technologies um, and the ways in which that can raise some unexpected consequences. Um, And then we have lastly, it's borrowing from sensation fiction. Um, And this gets somewhat to the form of the novel. So um, Dracula is what's called an epistolary novel, which I guess you guys are already familiar with having read The Moonstone. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's a novel that's composed of a collection of documents or, you know, traditionally letters, but in this case, documents. Right. So we've got a a whole collection of sort of newspaper clippings and transcribed diaries um, and recordings that have been written out. Right. We have all of these different elements that come together. Um, And that's really a central part of sensation fiction and particularly Mm -hmm. the works of Wilkie Collins. Um, And Wilkie Collins is a really, you know, exciting He's one of my favorite authors to talk about, mainly because he's so weird. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But he's like delightfully strange and he's, you know, really important to um, sort of this literary tradition. And I I think sometimes gets overlooked in sort of modern studies of British literature. But The Moonstone is really sort of the first British detective novel. So it's not the first detective novel globally. Um, Mm -hmm. There are a couple different contestants for that. Um, But The Moonstone is really sort of the the proto-British detective novel, particularly with this sort of country house mystery, um, the amateur detective, this sort of uh, nose thumbing at like the official detective, right? That Cuff is sort of not Mm -hmm. um, able to solve the case. Uh, We can see that as sort of like setting up later texts like Sherlock Holmes, but it also sets up um, Dracula in that we see a similar borrowing technique, right? Where in order to figure out sort of what Dracula has been doing, right? What's happened to Lucy Westenra? Um, why is she, you know, why does she die so young and in such a horrible way? What's going on with these children in that yeah. Heath? what requires that is the collection of documents in the same way that the Moonstone can only be solved through the assemblage of different texts and different perspectives. It's the same with Dracula as well.
0: And it's, and it's rare for us to, to kind of overtly address Dracula as a detective fiction, but it's fun to get to talk about it in this kind of, kind of conversation.
1: Yeah. And I think it's helpful when we think of detective fiction, that we tend to think of detective fiction as sort of exclusively the who done it. Right mm-hmm. in sort of the tradition of like an Agatha Christie novel or an early Agatha Christie novel, um, but if you think about sort of typology of detective fiction, which is a work by Setsvin Todorov, um, he really breaks it down into three different varieties of detective fiction. So you have the Who Done It, which is mm-hmm. interested in what's already happened, right? In fact, the name itself implies that it's it's really yeah. about driven about solving the past and answering questions of curiosity. Um, mm-hmm. But then there are the there are other forms in which the thriller, right? So Todorov mm-hmm. classifies the thriller as a type of detective fiction where it's focused on the present and a of suspense, which I would say that Dracula definitely fits into. Um, and then the suspense novel is sort of a, a, a merge between the two where it's sort of past, present, and future. It mm-hmm. mixes curiosity and suspense. And we do see some of that with Dracula as well, right? So trying to solve sort of what's going on I mean cause in some ways Dracula is entirely about the past, right? He's the undead, um he's been around forever. He's coming yeah. to haunt this place or trying to figure out what ha- what's happened, but it's really focused on a chase to actually catch up with him.
0: Which is why it's so fun to get to talk about this kind of genre, this kind of novel in terms of um, specific objects, things that are kind of driving the larger narrative? Because when we think of detective genre, we often think of it in terms of the clues, like physical clues that that lead us through the plot and the text. Let's talk about some of those those major objects that you would think would be kind of like, yes, these are the ones that we need to talk about.
1: Yeah. So if I was going to sort of guide you through the text of things to flag when you're reading, I would um, keep your eye on Four things. Right. I want you to pay attention to is the typewriter, blood, uh, night dresses, and trains. Um, and it might be helpful maybe to take these sort of in reverse order. So trains are the very first thing that really becomes sort of a salient detail um, in the beginning of the novel, right? Mm-hmm. So, so Jonathan is you know obsessively noting how fast or slow the trains are, right? He actually makes a note that the further east he goes the slower or the more off schedule the trains seem to be. Mm-hmm. And he has this moment of wondering like, gosh, I imagine what the trains are like in China, right? And already you're getting this Eastern and Western divide, which is really sort of uh, one of the sort of very prevalent themes in Dracula. And But trains also are beyond being sort of symbols of efficiency. They're also symbols of connection, right? Where you have the literal railway connection, mm-hmm of all the sort of lines running together. And if we link it back to sensation fiction and the Moonstone and Wilkie Collins and that sort of history of back history of Dracula, um, one of the big things of sensation fiction is this anxiety over increased mobility. Um, The trains allow people to get from one place to another so quickly that it might be difficult for all the information about who they are or what they're doing to travel with them. Right. That they can get ahead. People can get ahead of their own reputations, basically. In the very beginning of the novel, where Jonathan finds Dracula studying Bradshaw's guide, which was, of course, a book of brain timetables. So mm-hmm. Dracula is actually studying up how to move about um England with the greatest efficiency possible, which of course, you know, sort of, you know, presages the threat and his projects that he has in mind.
0: But it's something that also Mina is also kind of a whiz at train times.
1: Totally, totally. And I think that it like gets at something else really interesting, which is also like what makes the threat of Dracula so insidious, which I think we can talk about with the blood as well, but the, like his ability to, navigate these sort of British institutions suggests that they that the divide that Jonathan sets up in the beginning right that efficient trains are British right and inefficient trains are other is it like actually the other can master the mm-hmm. British train system and timetables just as well as anyone else right and so I think the trains also get to this broader question which connects the novel back to this imperial gothic I was talking about of being an anxiety about immigration right mm-hmm. So Dracula Mm -hmm. is the the immigrant that gets ahead of his own reputation, right? So he arrives, no one knows anything about him, um, and he's bringing with him disease, which of course has been one of the longstanding xenophobic fears about Mm -hmm. immigration um, Mm -hmm. that I think lives with us still.
0: No doubt. I mean, the idea of infection spreading hits completely differently during a pandemic here in 2021. Um, as well as its accompaniment with um, xenophobia, as we've seen escalated violence against Asian communities. Um, so this this is this this idea of Dracula and infection it punches at a completely different weight here here in the past year. In addition to that, though, I think we also see in Dracula the idea that spread um, can be infection, but it can also be technological spread. It can be the circulation of information or mobility. And so this idea of circulation and spread is kind of Tantamount to the way that we understand Dracula.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's definitely part of it. But I think that leads us really naturally then to blood, right? As the next object to think about in the ways that um, it circulates. And mm-hmm. certainly the fear that, you know, one of the things that Dracula is raising as a novel is the fear of tainting blood, mm-hmm. right? And that once someone is tainted, they too can circulate in the population, um, yeah. she's really about this fear of mixing
0: and that's and that's why Lucy is become is is kind of viewed as such a deep threat and and blood with Lucy becomes a really intricate thing right the fact that she's getting blood transfusions from so many people um which scientifically you know medically doesn't really fadge. <laughs> Doesn't
1: pan out. Yeah. Well, and it's sort of, well, and that's why we can read that as sort of a more symbolic action, right? Mm -hmm. So putting the sort of like science of blood transfusions aside, it is interesting and notable that um, the people who give Lucy the blood transfusions are her suitors, right? Mm -hmm. So that she has those three proposals and we have this merging of sort of aristocratic blood with the British aristocrat with the, British professional and doctor, and then sort of the American cowboy type, right? Well,
0: and then the fact that, and the fact that they give blood, all of these men are transfusing blood to Lucy. But then we know that Dracula is consuming Lucy. It's kind of lots of blood kind of circulating throughout all of this.
1: Well, yeah. And so to come back to this is sort of like one of the, the real anxieties that Dracula sort of brings up with this theme of blood is miscegenation, racial miscegenation, which is another term for sort of mixing of races, Mm -hmm. um, through marriage, um, Mm -hmm. or through sexual reproduction, right? Mm -hmm. And we, so what we have in sort of this blood within the novel, I mean, Stoker repeatedly, particularly through the mouth of Dracula, interestingly, positions blood as a sort of symbol of nationality, and sort of ethnic and racial origin, right? Where Dracula is constantly talking about the blood of his ancestors. Mm -hmm. And so we have blood equated with this sort of um, growing nationalist sort of sense of identity. Um, And so then Dracula sort of drinking and mixing all these bloods in his person sort of gets to this idea of mixing, which is a a great fear during this time period in which the British are worried about Um, a sort of degeneration of Britishness or a loss of pure British identity, particularly through um, the uh, expansion of the empire and then the return of immigrants to British soil as well, right? So there's Mm -hmm. this anxiety about that. And of course, having Lucy be essentially the target for that um, is striking too because of her, she's described as this incredibly beautiful, you know, perfect British girl in some Mm -hmm. ways. But the idea that she's, you know, she's this has the rosy cheeks, right? Mm-hmm. The blonde hair. Um, she's sort of the perfect dead girl too. To get back to sort of the detective fiction, wow. era. Um, that she becomes significant in her death. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing too is that she, you know, is in many ways sort of mimicking like what is the the trajectory of a girl like her, right? That she yeah. would be married. Um, and have children, and of course she preys on children once she becomes a vampire. Um, yeah. So this idea of sort of her as somehow perverting um, and making a mockery of sort of what the ideal version of the yeah. British family looks like is definitely written yeah.
0: to that. You know, by the end of the novel, we get Mina is the ultimate maternal and Lucy is always the ultimate non-maternal with as, as the blue fur lady.
1: Exactly. And the reason for this is through, I would argue, brings us to the nightdress is the mm-hmm. sexualization of Lucy, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so much fixation in the novel on Lucy's body, right? And her appearance and her beauty. Um, it's just constantly, constantly described, but she also, I mean, she's figured as sort of a sexual creature too, in her sort of desire that she wished she could marry more, than one man right so she gets the three proposals and then in what would have been considered sort of shocking um you know admits in her letter to nina oh you know if only a girl didn't have to choose right if only i could marry all of them um and that is definitely a problem in victorian eyes right that she should be solely dedicated um to arthur but instead you know, she's sort of has desire spread around, whereas Mina is singularly focused on Jonathan. And so in this way, Lucy, while very beautiful and sort of maybe physically a model of Britishness, in fact, she's oversexualized, and that becomes a problem, whereas Mina is not, um, even though she is forced into um, sort of, I guess you could frame it as a type of sexual assault by Dracula later mm-hmm. in the novel, she's figured as resisting, right? In a way that Lucy is not.
0: Yeah, in some really uncomfortable ways, it's like victim blaming, victim shaming. The fact that that Lucy dresses or or has sexual appeal is it makes these vampire attacks kind of her fault, which we know is is utter rubbish, right? You know, you are you are not to, to blame for a sexual assault. Yeah, and Mina doesn't get blamed in the same way.
1: Yeah, the Lucy in some way is, if not consenting, then not and as resisting as she could Mm -hmm. be, right? That she is at least susceptible to multiple attacks. And I think this is also why I wanted to think about the night dress as a symbol for it, Mm -hmm. right? It's this white garment, um, right? And so being a night dress both points to sort of um, thinking about it in sexual terms, right? That the attacks happen at night, that they happen Mm -hmm. during a period of relative undress, right? Of privacy, Mm -hmm um, that Lucy is sleepwalking in her nightdress suggests a level of promiscuity in that way as well, right? That she is moving around through spaces she shouldn't mm-hmm. be in a manner of undress. And then the whiteness of the dress itself, right? Both as a canvas that better shows the blood that's dripping from the mm-hmm. neck or, you know, but it mm-hmm. also figures in our minds like a wedding dress, right? Purity. Um, yeah. and so I think that that's, it's sort of an overdetermined object, and that it's gesturing towards all of those things, and helps make mm-hmm. sense of sort of the the woman's experience and why they're wearing this type of garment when they are attacked.
0: And both Mina and Lucy are wearing a nightdress when when they're attacked by Dracula. So when the blood falls on the gown, it is kind of this overt contamination of the British woman.
1: Yes, yeah, staining, literally, right? And yeah, again, so it's just like it's so it's so overt in some ways, right? That mm-hmm. the dress is stained with blood. Um, yeah. Definitely links to this idea of being this symbol of purity and sort of domestic privacy, um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and sort of sexuality within sort of marriage is instead stained by blood of miscegenation and racial mixing, and that sort of is like the real sort of fear in Dracula too.
0: The white night dress is also supposed to be this kind of virginal thing that on your wedding night, you know, the hymenal blood is what. is is what is supposed to happen. And so the fact that Lucy is not married and so for it to be on her dress is super problematic and for it to be on Mina's dress when it's not because of Jonathan, those are really huge. Like, like you can't ignore the sexuality of the night dresses in, in Dracula.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that those are sort of ways to think about, you know, blood and night dresses are linked. And I think sort of, if we want to think about adding in that last object that I mentioned before, the typewriter. So how do we fight against sort of this idea of a threat that comes from blood that sort of threatens young women and their sexual purity? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that gets to the idea of using technology, right? Mm-hmm. So the typewriter really is another sort of central figure that we see from the very beginning of the novel. And in some ways we can see sort of a pairing happening here, right? Where the, mm-hmm. the sort of speed and mobility of trains is met with the efficiency of the typewriter, right? Where Mm -hmm. tech used as sort of a mode of transport and potential site of threat in the novel is then met with another type of technology that helps trace and keep records. And I think that's also interesting just to go back to the nitrous quickly to think about the ways in which... um, you know, keeping records is part of the ways in which public health is monitored, right? And Mm -hmm. one of the major concerns about public health in the Victorian era was sexually transmitted illnesses as well, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, to the point where, um, you know, working class women could be stopped and forcibly examined um, because they were thought to be potentially prostitutes carrying disease. And of course, men were not subjected to these same examinations. But you can see how public health is also Mm -hmm. part of this novel as well, when we connect Mm -hmm. sort of blood and sexuality together, but also then this sort of uh, attempts to track and keep record.
0: This reminds me of actually one of my favorite quotes from um, Friedrich Kittler, who actually talks about new media and Dracula. And he basically says that Dracula isn't really a vampire novel. Instead, it's basically a novel about bureaucracy. And then he says something like it's and that that can be a horror novel as well, but but really that new media is kind of driving this as is bureaucracy.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, and definitely we think bureaucracy, right? Like with Dr. Seward's mental health institution, right? He's using the phonograph to both keep his personal diary and the records of his patient's care, right? What I think also we can see sort of Dracula getting into, adding into this bureaucracy, it's sort of joining in, um, at a moment where professionalization in the middle class it has been growing at least for the last maybe five decades or so, mm-hmm. right? We're seeing this sort of shift in Victorian society, where, you know, at the beginning of the century, the emphasis is still on sort of the aristocracy and the landed gentry. By the end of the century, that's really shifted to a focus on professionalization. So while mm-hmm. Arthur is still, you know, Lord Godalming is still sort of a this very important figure, he can't fight this battle alone. In fact, he's assisted by a cadre of professional men, yeah. right? Yeah. And key to that is Mina's role as our typist, right? That she is practicing stenography. Um, and this is really a really gendered position. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you've seen even like something like Mad Men, right? Like you'll know that's like historically typists and secretaries have been you know women at least as long as the typewriter has been part mm-hmm. of sort of modern tech but that positions her within this sort of um role or figure of the new woman which is the professional girl mm-hmm. and in some ways you know stoker is really charting out you know what is an appropriate performance of female gender during the late 19th century in his view right mm-hmm. so he wants so mina you know, in order to not become too professional and too masculine, right, has to become the perfect mother by the end of the novel. But she's still, um, she's professional in service of her husband. But also because the ways in which this technology ends up being so gendered, it ends up being dismissed by the end of the novel, which for me has always been sort of the most striking element that Mina's ability to, um, organize, order, collate all these narratives into typewriting, at the very end, it's dismissed as just a stack of paper, right? That it's not Mm -hmm. authentic record keeping Mm because it's a record of a record. But I've always read that as sort of a dismissal of sort of her professional activity in order to situate her in the home as a mother by the end of the tale. So in many ways, right, um, Stoker creates this radical position for women to hold, right? Mina's on the hunt with the men, right? Participating in it in every step, going yeah. after Dracula, and yeah. the way to sort of re, you know, situate her within the domestic sphere is to essentially um, dismiss all of this typewriting material, typewritten material, which I've always read as sort of like a symbolic decap- decapitation in a way, right? Where like, in some ways, like the our heroes are vampirically preying on Nina as well, not yeah. just Dracula.
0: Yeah, totally dismissive of her work and then and then the fact that again by the end of the novel, you know, they say, Oh, it's just a massive typewriting that's and that it's replaced by a baby. Right? The typewriter is no longer the thing that's sitting in her lap and helping her be this powerful force. Um, it's this baby that's on her knee.
1: Um actually thinking about this now, it sort of brings it back nicely to the idea of the detective genre, right? Because the point of a detective novel in some ways is the detective appears on the scene in order to deal with some sort of aberration, right? Mm -hmm. The societal aberration, something has gone wrong. Someone is wrong, right? Mm -hmm. So if Dracula arriving on English shores is the aberration here, right? That's when this sort of like uh, picking up, I I guess Ben Helsing is often viewed as sort of the lead detective, but I think Mina as well, right? Mina is sort of our uh, record keeper. And then by the end of the novel, the point is that the detective has to leave the scene because Mm -hmm. normalcy is returned, right? Mm-hmm. So then we end with sort of this return of some sort of status quo and the detectives no longer need, being needed. And so in mm-hmm. some cases, this sort of uh, Mina being having a child and the the typewriting being, you know, essentially pushed aside and Van Helsing somewhat, you know, not central to this picture anymore. We're left with Mina and her son, Quincy. Um, yes. That's where we get sort of like this return to status quo,
0: well, and given that idea that the closure of the novel kind of brings us to the conversational end here in our podcast, why do you think that discussions about Dracula remain relevant beyond um, a literature survey course like this?
1: Thematically, Dracula hinges on so many things that we continue to explore. The monster monster texts are never just about the monster; they're more often about us, right? And What the monster means, I think, um, depends on the moment that it exists in, but it's always about some other that's being positioned as dangerous, threatening, and perhaps already here.
0: So the novel continues to evolve as much as we as a culture evolve. It'll never not be relevant as long as we're engaging with it in terms of social issues that surround us. Well, thank you so much, Ashley. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for being part of the podcast.
1: Thanks. This was super fun. Thank you for uh, letting me do this. I really enjoyed it as well.
0: Thank you again to Dr. Ashley Nadeau for being a part of our our podcast. I look forward to talking with you in our class about all these topics and more. Join us next week when we're joined by Dr. Jonathan Patterson to discuss World War One poetry.